Welcome to Maker Mom, a podcast where I explore the stories of Maker Moms and the life they lead. Each week, I will bring you the behind the scenes story of a new Maker Mom. I'm Katie Freeman, a furniture designer and content creator running FreemanFurnishings.com and your host of the Maker Mom podcast. You can find Maker Moms hanging out in the Facebook community at Maker Moms and on the web at MakerMomPodcast.com. If you love what you hear, please subscribe, leave a stellar review, and share this out with other Maker Moms you know. Hello and welcome to episode 123 of the Maker Mom podcast. This week's guest is Alicia of Hilton Daniel. And I actually found Alicia through a former podcast guest, uh, Brittany Pretty Handy Girl had posted about uh, an article that was done on Alicia, and so that's how I found her. And she is another general contractor, just like Brittany, and interior designer as well, in running her own business. So I know you're going to enjoy this episode, learning about her story. It is quite an amazing story. And uh, before we hop into the interview with Alicia, though, I want to give a big shout out and thanks to the patrons over on Patreon. So thank you so much, Kevin Lefty's Woodshop, Christy Twisted Twisted Twine, Christina B., Jeremy Spies, Sammy, Go Sammy Lee, Lauren, Rasp File Designs, Sven Dwarf Size Workshop, Rachel Moody Makes, Bonnie Tool Mom Bonnie Tool Mom Store.com, Laura Oakley Soap Company, Mary Lou Made by Mary Lou, Amy Bison Valley Carving, Dan and Kelly Reclaim Living Store, Brandy Studio Obey, Kathy One Girl in Her Tools, Ellen Little Bear Furniture, and Ethan, Ethan Carter Designs, thank you all so very much for your ongoing and continued support helping me to produce two episodes a week, every week. And with no further ado, here is Alicia of Hilton Daniel. Awesome. All right. Well, I do always start with having my guests introduce themselves. So when you're ready, I'll let you go ahead and do that. Okay. Well, my name is Alicia. Some people oh. say Alicia, which is a whole different story we can talk about, but I do prefer Alicia, husband calls me Alicia, um, Hilton Daniel. I am a, um, a interior designer by profession and became a licensed, a licensed general contractor in 2016. I do hold a commercial license, but um, which allows me the flexibility. I prefer to do residential design because I am small and want to stay small. Um, so that's what I've been focusing on. Um, I, my company is based in Durham, North Carolina, and I've lived in Durham over 20 years. Um, I was born in Jamaica, came to this country when I was seven years old, grew up in Queens, New York, and just like coming to America with Eddie Murphy, I, my expectations of Queens wasn't what it was when we, when we uh, landed. Um, we lived with my mom's sister for a little bit in Cambria Heights, and then I grew up most of my um, formative years in Long Island, New York, um, Nassau County, uh, it was okay, wasn't <laughs> um, And then I, um, anyway, we can kind of get to my education, but that's the bout of it. Um, becoming an interior designer and then licensed general contractor was a second career. And we can kind of talk about how that all came to be. 
Okay. Yeah. Awesome. So I do want to, since this is, you know, maker mom, how many kiddos do you have? I have two. I have two daughters. Um, my, my eldest is 23. She graduated from universe from UT Austin during this pandemic. Um, she's a classical pianist. As I said, she's a performance pianist. <laughs> um, and then my youngest Chloe is 16 and goes to the Durham school of the arts and it's a big soccer fan. And then I have a, a yellow lab that's about 12. He's an old man, but he doesn't act like it. <laughs> I call him my, my hot mess, but I love him. <laughs> yeah, and fur children definitely count. I have an old man dog as well, except for mine is much smaller than the lab. My, mine's a terrier mix and he'll be, he turns um, 11 this year. Uh, oh so. yeah, he's getting up there too, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he still gets the zoomies as we call it, where he just goes crazy running around the yes. house. <laughs> um, the yes man and, and the male man. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, all right. So yeah, let's spend a little bit of time maybe talking about you know the the early part of your life in, in Jamaica and then coming over to the US, like um just what was that experience like? Yeah, I mean, I came when I was fairly young. I was seven. Um, clearly, the Jamaican accent is gone, which I get a lot of a lot of flack from my family. Um, it was a very. Uh, it's kind of hard to put, you know, the exact articulated word for growing up in Jamaica. Um, by all means, my family um, was considered above middle class. We owned a grocery store called Hilton Supermarket. Um, but my father was not a very pleasant person to be with, to be around. So um, I remember just being a little child and we lost everything, possibly when I was about four, we lost the business. It was, you know, a lot of polit pol political turmoil in Jamaica mm. during the 70s. Um, and so we gave up the grocery store and we moved to the city. And then shortly after that, we left because my mom said that their lives were in danger. They were considered capitalist because they owned a supermarket. So her life would be threatened often. And so um, I believe the government, the way that it worked is that they were like, fine, you can leave, but you can only take what would have amounted to 75 US dollars. Oh, so wow. pretty much left everything behind. And when they got here, I would say within a year, my parents split. And I really, my father was in and out of our lives for most of my life, for most of my life. And he died um, last year, um, complications with um, dementia and uh, COVID. So, yeah. Well, I'm I'm sorry for your your loss, even though even if it was a complicated relationship. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, but growing up in New York, um, you know, it was special. New York was like the coolest place, or people believe it to be the coolest place on the planet. So. Um, I wasn't far from the city, so I got um, immersed in, like, I was really big into, like, art. Um, you know, I remember winning quite a few art awards in school or always being associated with art. Art was my favorite subject um, and that sort of thing. Um, but I didn't have that mentor or that guidance counselor. My mom was working all the time, and she had four kids, but you know, nobody really honed in on it. Sure, they went to all the art awards I won. I even won a trip to California to compete um, 
which is a big deal um, for the county that I lived in. Um, but it still just wasn't recognized and regarded as a, as a career path. I think mm -hmm. when you are black, um, you know, looking at generational wealth or making sure that you're going to be able to, you know, make a living, um, art, unfortunately, in, in our community, in our culture, especially when I was growing up, was not regarded as a true or respected career path. Mm -hmm. And because I like to talk a lot and I was good at arguing, everyone felt that I should go to law school, even though I didn't even apply myself. I was such an artist that I didn't even care. And so anyway, I ended up um, going to um, university. I came to North Carolina when I was in my teens because I had a friend that was here that was a year ahead of me. And I liked it. And I felt like it was far enough away from New York because I didn't want to be so close to family. I was a middle child. So I think when you're a middle girl, you never get your own room. So you kind of wanted your own space. So um, I chose North Carolina. I did not have a plan. I just applied to Shaw University, which is a historical black college and studied criminal justice there. Um, and would graduate, I would, you know, um, I worked three jobs when I was in school, which is a whole nother story. So I did not have like a 3.5. They had just made it to a 3.0. Um, I did work, go to school, live off campus. Um, and then I graduated, went back to New York, landed a pretty big job at a pretty prestigious law firm in Manhattan. At the time, they were like the 10th largest law firm in the world. Um, and I was, it was really interesting because it was like the mid 90s and I was like the first African-American female that they ever hired to be like a full-time paralegal. They had African, they were, they were temps. They would hire them from like corp, you know, from temp agencies, mm -hmm. actually the official one, which at the time, I mean, looking back, that's bizarre. But anyway, I did that for a while. It didn't pay very well. <laughs> <laughs> um, luckily, there was so much work that the laws in New York, I think it was 35 hours was your salary and everything after that was time and a half. And that was the only way I was able to afford my very cute, um, it was my very, it was called a junior apartment because the bedroom was barely big enough to fit anything beyond a full bed in uh, Fort Greene, Brooklyn, in the, Clinton, in the Clinton Hill kind of Fort Greene neighborhood, which I thought was just the coolest place ever. Um, and so I stayed in New York until my husband, who I was dating at the time, um, who was also from New York, but I met him in North Carolina, um, convinced me to come back and we got married. Um, he was here studying for, at the time, computer technology. <laughs> Take off. <laughs> the internet. Mm -hmm. I aged myself. And so um, he convinced me to come back to North Carolina. Um, Shaw was in Raleigh. I wasn't excited about coming back. I did stay in Raleigh for a while. And we always lived in what was considered like the downtown neighborhoods in Raleigh. But the moment he would come home from work, I would just be in tears. I was just very unhappy. And no offense to Raleigh, it's gotten better, but back in the 90s, it just wasn't special. Um, so eventually it made sense that we moved into Durham because that's where his job was. And I had, and then I stayed home. I stayed home with my daughter for a year and then went back to work in the legal field um, and worked in Raleigh, but lived in Durham and really just, just came to love Durham. It was a perfect fit. So, so I want to unpack a little bit around like, 
the career path choice, right? Um, yeah. What, do you feel like some of that might have been, you know, I've had other guests who, um, uh, who have, you know, immigrant parents who came to the U.S. when they were a child. And I think especially in the immigrant community, it's my understanding that especially within that community, it's kind of thought of like, you know, doctor, lawyer, like those are the things that they want their children to become. Do you think, I mean, do you feel like that played any kind of role in that? Sure. Even though I didn't really have any reference. I mean, I did have a cousin that was a few years older than me, maybe, maybe five years older than me, who did become a lawyer, like went on to like, you know, prestigious universities and, you know, so forth. And My mother wanted to be an optometrist, but got married, but was a very good entrepreneur. I mean, she ran this grocery store that even though it was in my father's name, he was never there. I mean, she ran it and ran Mm -hmm. a staff. Um, So the expectations, because she was a single mother and because she had four children and she didn't want us to suffer, um, she didn't really, I don't think she was, she was never kind of like strict about it. She just kind of suggested (laughs) that she thought that um, I would be a lawyer just because I love to engage. I was very kind of social justice conscious (laughs) as a Caribbean dealing with colorism as a little girl, right? In the Caribbean, there's this kind of light skin, dark skin, and I was darker of, of cousins and family. And so I was always having to be an advocate for myself. I was exhausted at seven, always trying to kind of (laughs) Um, yeah. Hi, makers. Today's episode is brought to you by toolmomstore.com. Toolmom and company is for all ages, genders. They have what you need for your one-stop tool-related merchandise of gifts and clothing. Uh, the products are fun, fashionable, one-of-a-kind. In fact, I have two of the mugs. Uh, one has a circular saw with flames coming off of it. It says, Go Girl. Another one has the definition of a tool chick. Both of them are super awesome, and I have coffee out of them almost every morning. So check out toolmomstore.com or find them on Instagram at toolmombonnie. You can receive an extra 20% off at a checkout by using the code MAKERMOM. So I think that's what it was, right? And I certainly, I was a really good paralegal. I was very detailed and so forth and so on. But looking back in like my interview with the, with the writer from Dwell, I was like, oh my gosh, it was there. Like I never really kind of sat and took it all in because I did have this house fire that led to that. But it was even earlier on where my mom brought a picture of when I was a preteen and I made this modern house (laughs) out of a cardboard, out of things found. And then um, I just remember like my obsession with New York City, particularly like Chelsea, New York or Brooklyn, even when I lived there um, as a professional, the brownstones, I just used to love to walk around in the evening, especially, so I could see the lights on and people's curtains, Mm -hmm. see what those interiors were. I mean, they were just stunning. And then I would just kind of imagine like what the rest of the space looked like. So I was already space planning, always thinking about design, always thinking about art, always going to art museums. I mean, I would schedule my vacations around art galleries in that city or that place that we were, mm-hmm. that we were going. So it was always there. 
um, the house fire that I had just allowed that kind of awakening um, or find, allowed me to advocate again for myself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was a lot of soul searching. And even though, you know, a lot of us designers kind of frown on HGTV, that movement had started and that kind of the fine living channel. I remember watching Sheila Bridges on the fine living channel and just loving what she did. And I think that was part of that, um, that confidence or that um, me allowing myself to say, okay, maybe I can do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So <laughs> interesting similarity. I just picked up. So you're going past these spaces and, you know, looking at the interiors as the spaces themselves. Um, I did not grow up anywhere as cool, near as cool as <laughs> New York or, or that type of area. But um, I, I was always drawn to architecture, but I remember distinctly loving going by in the evenings with lights on and curtains drawn, not to necessarily see the spaces, but to imagine the life that that space mm. allowed versus you know what what I grew up with so um yeah it's it's interesting just a different take on a very similar experience experience absolutely so um tell tell me more about you know the the house fire and kind of what that how that changed your direction um it wasn't instant, but we did buy. So back when we moved to Durham, I was very drawn to the downtown neighborhoods. And this was the late 90s. Um, and so Durham was kind of blighted. It wasn't like it was now. It was, you know, lots of crime. It was uh, a lot of um, houses were um, vacant. Um, but I was looking at it from leaving Brooklyn, leaving Brooklyn, New York, and coming to Durham. North Carolina and looking at, you know, the access of being able to afford something in downtown. Um, but the brokers that we found or that were recommended to us um, kind of like pushed us, stared us away of, from downtown. And so against my own will <laughs> and not being an interior designer then, but just having that sense of, ah, having to settle, we lived in the uh, the suburbs of Durham, um, which was fine. I wasn't very happy about it, but Durham wasn't where it was today. So it was fine. It wasn't like downtown was had been re- revitalized. So um, we bought a very cookie cutter <laughs> uh, house in a development. And the one thing that I did like about it is that it had a, um, a wood burning fireplace. Um, and so that would obviously be our detriment, right? Because um, we had a snowstorm, a famous ice storm of 2002, right? In Durham, North Carolina. And we are obviously in the South, so we're not equipped to handle um, that sort of weather. And um, it was good that we had this wood burning fireplace because your electricity and everything was out. So we could burn our fireplace and go to sleep at night. Um, And then all I remember is, just a banging on the door and a woman just kind of getting us all out of the house. It was like the wee hours of the morning, I would say maybe two, 3 a.m. And she had been walking her her dogs, or I think she said she was walking her dogs or looking for stray dogs. 
I, I can't remember the story. And she saw that a fire um, on, the, on the top of the roof. And so what happened is that they just didn't, the way that the house was built, that flue just was not properly fastened. Mm -hmm. Over time, it, yeah, with all that heat, it became loose and the fire started on top of the house. Luckily, we were all downstairs. Unbeknownst to me, my mom was staying with us at the time. She'd recently moved from New York um, to relocate to North Carolina. And she went, she had went upstairs, um, but we were all able to get out. It was not a complete loss, um, which was good. I would say the fire, the, you know, the firefighters, bless their hearts, <laughs> they probably did more damage, you know, having to come in mm -hmm. and cut through things and, and um, get the fire out. Um, I just remember coming back to the house and opening my bedroom door and just being able to see outside. So, <laughs> um, and the whole process was awful for, I mean, looking back now, because I know what I know, um, there was so much racism and misogyny and them just taking advantage of our ignorance about construction. Um, and I remember being very angry and obviously I didn't work in a field or have anyone in the industry that I could kind of lean on. I mean, there wasn't even Google back then. So you couldn't, you couldn't right. <laughs> how to handle the insurance company, and the, you know, the um, reconstruction uh, fire um, general contractor that they've hired. Um, but needless to say, you know, it got done. And I knew that once it got done, um, two things, I put my foot down. We were not going to stay in that house. Um, and we were going to move downtown. And I told my husband, because I was studying for the LSATs. And I remember like, I was literally, at the time, I was just sick to my stomach and I couldn't figure out why I wasn't feeling well. And it was very emotional. I didn't want to be a lawyer. I didn't want to be a lawyer. It wasn't my, my passion. And so I just looked at him and said, I think I want to do something with like architecture and design and I got to figure it out. Um, and then I started researching um, professions or things that I could maybe go, go to school for and I have all my architecture friends, like, why don't you become an architect? And I think it was, I don't think, I know it was this. You know, I was already in my 30s and I had a daughter and I just didn't have that time. I also didn't think I was smart enough to be quite honest with you. I was an artist that was afraid of math. So architecture just seems such like, an, you know, you have to be an engineer or have mm -hmm. that, that, that right brain, right? To be able to grasp all of that. And so I felt like interior design was kind of that, what do you call it? That like sweet spot. It was right. Like, okay, I can learn about architecture, but I also really love interiors and design. So somehow I can kind of, you know, go down this, this career path. Um, and it, you know, fortunately it, it worked out. It, it really did. So where does, where does the general contractor Please yeah. come in. So um, I'll say this. So I started out as a commercial interior designer, um, which I think gave me a huge advantage just from my perspective. I, I would love to sit down and talk to someone that started in the industry as a residential designer and maybe became a general contractor. Um, I felt like the commercial um, interior designer allowed me to have the full-on construction experiences that I might not have other mm -hmm. 
Wise had working for residential designers. Um, I was, you know, even though I graduated school during the recession of 2008, um, I remember graduating and being one of three out of a class of, I can't remember, maybe they were like 50 interior designers. It was a pretty small program, but it was big enough that got a job. Mm. Everyone else, you know, even to, to this day, that class, they either became brokers or they left the industry altogether or they're doing other things. And um, it just worked out for me. I showed up to my portfolio with my work and a company kind of recognized and liked what I did and invited me for an interview and I got the job. And so working at that firm, how they used interior designers, I didn't know any, any different. It was the first firm I worked for. So um, we would do upfits, like office upfits. Mm -hmm. And so the interior designer would go on site. We would measure the space. Um, I would go up in like the, uh, the, uh, the plenum. I would have to not only know the dimensions, but understand what the existing utilities were in that space. Mm. Because if we're going to change it and we're adding different rooms, you know, what does that heating system, what's that cooling right. system, right? Where are my fire alarms? Does is the, is the building sprinklered? Is it not sprinkler? So there was more to it than just the decoration or the ornament that people think interior designers do. Um, and so that job taught me a lot. And the architect's were especially one in particular. I have hats off to Scott Idle. He was just such a good human and very patient and just taught me a lot. Um, and I, I knew that he knew the more that he taught me, the less that he would have to work, right? And so yeah. we did all of our planning. We, we 3D modeled. I taught myself Revit because they were like, look, we hired you, but we don't have any money to train you on Revit. I remember coming home and throwing up because Revit like, you know, I'm an older person learning technology, like in my thirties. And I was like, so overwhelmed by it. Cause I learned AutoCAD in school and they are, even though they're the same company, I always say they are the bloods and the crypts. They are completely different on opposite sides. And so, um, but it was a great experience because I caught on, I loved it. I asked questions. I liked being out in the field. I liked doing it all. I wasn't like, oh, all I want to do is pick finishes. I like doing the whole thing. I wanted credit for everything. So I was <laughs> doing it. And so as it worked out, um, the interior designer manager, she kind of worked primarily for one of our big clients. And so I was left to take on like other jobs or like, and then I was able to work for like a big company that was kind of nationally based. And so I did their standards. And then I Another company came in that was based in like Barcelona and I loved modern design. So I kind of took, you know, became their uh, interior designer where they would fly me, you know, to different parts of, um, of the country to work on other spaces or give con or, 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 or consult. Um, and so that was, you know, that was great. Hey friends. I wanted to tell you about an awesome brand I discovered that you might love as well. Have you ever spent a ton of money on clothing that was supposed to be high performance only for it to end up at the back of your closet because it just doesn't fit right? I personally hate when this happens. I get excited about a new pair of work boots and then I'm disappointed to find out they just weren't designed for me. 
Discovering Athena Outfitters was a game changer for me. Athena Outfitters is a quality workwear brand for hardworking women. All of their items are handpicked to meet the needs of women in the trades, not just sized down versions of items designed for men. They've got great workwear essentials like comfortable, soft, and safety toe boots and options for my active lifestyle when I'm off the clock as well. Shopping with Athena Outfitters saves me time and energy because I always know I'm getting a high quality product that also looks and feels great. Next time you're looking for gear with grit, check out AthenaOutfitters.com. That is A-T-H-E-N-A Outfitters.com and use special code at checkout MM15 to get a 15% discount because you listen to the Maker Mom podcast. And then following that, I, um, you know, like I said, this firm was in, they were in Raleigh and I did not like the, the commute. And during this time, I really, we had still lived in this house that I told my husband we were going to be leaving. And so my daughter was going, my youngest was, both of my daughters were going to school in downtown Durham. And one day I dropped them to school and drove down this really pretty street I always loved. And there was a house for sale. There was a house for sale. And so I remember calling my husband and saying, oh my God, I really, can we go look at this house tonight? And I mean, the whole house was a long story because it, then it went under contract. And then Roger had a coworker who he and his wife lived around the corner and she went to talk, she just kind of was walking her dogs one day and saw the owner was like, hey, when are you moving? And he's like, actually it didn't happen. And she was like, there is an interior designer wants your house. <laughs> and so he became intrigued with that because he had done a lot of work. This was a four square house that was built as a duplex back in the thirties. However, at one time it was a boarding house. There was a house fire where I am right now in my basement. And my neighbor said he stopped counting at 30 people that ran out of the house during the fire. So um, needless to say, um, you know, we did not have a lot of, we still had our other house on the other side of Durham, but we worked out a deal with him where we just about waited for our house to sell and then were, was able to purchase this house. We actually moved in and like paid him to, it was kind of a wild thing. You can't, <laughs> you can't get those types of deals today. Um, but it worked out. So I got my downtown old house. And then shortly thereafter, I was ready to go. I was ready to work within, I wanted to just be, you know, what I love, which is a, you know, a Durham native. And so I was able to um, get a job at another architectural firm that was like six blocks from my house. <laughs> so on nice days, if I didn't have to um, go visit clients, I would walk to work. Um, and I loved it there. And so during that course, my husband um, and I bought a house just a block away from our house that was bank owned, which is again, Durham has changed so much. We literally called the bank and said, we'd like to buy this house, but we're still trying to get the funds together. And he was like, no problem. Just call <laughs> when you're ready. <laughs> and that became my first um, kind of residential design build. Now, I was not a general contractor at the time. I'd hired one, and we didn't hire a very good one. So um, I actually had an architect friend here in Durham that recommended someone 
And we thought that we were getting a, you know, a good job done. And we found out that he was completely um, duping us. He was doing bad work or covering up termite damage, just putting new subfloor. He told us we got a new roof. He was just patching. And so we ended up having to literally go through our arbitration to get rid of him. Um, and, you know, kind of looked over at my husband, like, what are we going to do now? And he said, I think you should become the general contractor. And I was like, <laughs> like, seriously, like, you know, cause you're like, there's, there is a standard, right? Like my daughter is a classical pianist. She also does not fit the standard and that's mm-hmm. been, and so when he said that I had no reference of anyone that looked like me. Right. And so it was scary when he said that, yes, it made sense, but I was also afraid because I was like, well, how is that going to work? And so I did it in terms of, okay, I'll become one. And then as we do other things, if we, cause at, at the time, and we're still kind of like, well, it makes sense that we try to find investment properties and become, you know, have rental properties here in Durham. Um, and as an interior designer that feeds my soul to do something, <laughs> um, so I was like, okay, well, I'll just become a general contractor and then we can kind of have this license when we do our own projects. Um, and when I got the license, um, we found a house in auction. It's the first house I did. That was a teardown. You know, it just, it, it is what it is. There was food in the fridge for about 10 years. <laughs> um, and that really became sort of the pinnacle of kind of like what would start Hilton Daniel Design um, because it was a non-conforming lot, right? Which means the city, it was, it was a, um, you know, back during segregation, African-Americans did not get permission, did not get, go down to the city and go, I'm going to buy this property from my neighbor and it needs to be re-recorded. Mm-hmm. So we didn't learn that the lot was non-conforming until after, you know, it was purchased. And I don't think that would have made a difference. But what it did is that that it limited what we could build in terms of size and height. And so it challenged me as a designer, but it also freed me because I really didn't want to build a new old house. Um, I wanted to use my skills and my form, my love of design and design something that I would live in. And so I, unap- I unapologetically <laughs> built a modern house and just took my chances. Um, and I did this while I was working my full-time job. So I would get up in the morning and be on site at 6 a.m. till I started work. Work started for me at 8.30. Go at lunchtime. And then I would come home, pack up Chloe <laughs> and dinner, and we would go on site. Um, and that would fluctuate. Sometimes if it was cold and we were like, you know, when there was just sheet, when there was no heat, she would go, go to my mom's and I'd pick her up. Um, and Roger was also working his second job as well. We had opposite schedules. So it kind of worked out. He was off during the daytime. So he would manage construction during the day. He would work on weekends and I would manage construction on weekends. Um, and that's kind of how we did it. And, um, Eventually, I, I just, you know, I told them, I, you know, when we felt like it just felt that it was time to resign from my job and they knew it was coming. <laughs> I mean, they even highlighted my house on their blog, which was really nice and couldn't believe I had done this. 
but it was an amazing feeling to put something on paper, you know, and then watch it come to life, manage the construction, manage the, uh, the accrue, and then kind of hope for the best. And when we, you know, over the weekend, when we put the house for sale, we had five offers over the weekend. So I think that kind of confirmed that maybe we would be okay. And so that's what happened. That was kind of what started. <laughs> I had, I mean, I take a lot of client work. We just, we're not like full yeah. development. I've only built three houses so far. I am starting on the fourth if the weather will cooperate, but um, you know, and it's, I mean, we could talk about it. I mean, it's been, it's been hard. It is a very hard profession, um, but I'm doing it, I guess. <laughs> What's, yeah, I've had, um, in fact, that's how, uh, that's how I found you to ask you about the podcast is I found you through another general contractor that I've had on the podcast, uh, Brittany of Pretty Handy Handy Girl. Um, Yeah. So, you know, she, she talked about her experiences, you know, her lived experience uh, being a general contractor in the world of still not many general contractors look yeah. like her. Um, and so, you know, I want to ask you a, a same question, just like, what's, what's your experience running a team yeah. as, as you, you know? <laughs> well, here's what I say, right? And I mean, this is just how I feel. It is not even, yeah. So I <laughs> say the interior designer, the interior designer of me represents like Claire Huxtable, right? Like, just think about Claire Huxtable. She was this amazing attorney, took care of her family, and you know she got things done and everyone loved her. And so that's kind of how my personality is when I'm the interior designer working with clients. Then I become Samuel Jackson, (laughs) (laughs) right? Because you have to be, right? Like, you have to kind of be this person that, you know, I really love relationships and conversations and friendships, but I realize or I've learned that especially in construction, people can take kindness for weakness and they can absolutely prey on you and take advantage. And, you know, we've had a variety of amazing um, contractors. And then we've had some where we can't even articulate that sort of behavior or um, lack of (laughs) work ethic. Um, And then I always say, you know, I have this kind of, you know, Dr. You know, was it Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, um, where I am Claire Huxtable and Samuel Jackson. And then when the project is done and you think you're done, then I'm Al Pacino in The Godfather 3. I can't get out. There's always something, right? You're like, we're done, right? Like this project where we are 90 5% 5% done, the glass shower has to go in and they begged me not to install the sink in the toilet because the, the glass shower is so big and they're, and then, you know, not, it's not their fault. It was a rainy day and they had the suctions on and the glass shattered, right? <laughs> so now the, the job has been delayed a week or the stainless steel guys that showed up to fabricate a chimney hood and we had to install the hood so that all that they could do is, you know, attach the, uh, the actual chase and the guy put all of his weight on the chimney hood and dented it. And who do you think had to buy back, right? And so there was a time where I would be so stressed 
And I would take it out of my, my pocket. And now I call up and I'm like, that is so not happening, right? Because you have to, they will take advantage of the fact that you're a woman and that you're a black woman. So if you even come to them with any kind of like um, disagreement, then you're like angry or you're being, um, yeah. Too emotional. You need to calm down is my thing, right? And I say that in a very cynical way. Today's sponsor is Rasp and File Designs. Rasp and File was created to give new life to old things and create spaces that feel timeless, unique, and warm. Your home and business should be your sanctuary, a place of solace, and your personal piece of art. The owner and woodworker behind Rasp and File Designs is Lauren Matthews. And you can follow along and find out more information on Instagram. Just look up Rasp Filed Designs or on the internet at rfdesigns.squarespace.com. And so I, luckily for me, I like a lot of dark humor. So I'm able to kind of navigate where I'm talking to them, but it also comes across as me kind of being funny and we can all have a good laugh about it. At the end of the day, they know that I'm serious. And then there's an email that follows that says, actually, I will buy back this hood because I'm not going to do back and forth with you because it needs to get here and install. And then I'll pay you what's left. I will pay you the balance. Um, And so there's always, um, always this back and forth, like you, and sometimes it becomes, well, it's always exhausting, but the fact that you have to do their job and yours, mm-hmm. you'll find that there's some contractors out there. I mean, I have, I've had some tell me that they don't read drawings and I'm like, what, why are you here? And this is like the owner or they'll show up. We just had our mechanical installers show up to do a final, just to trim out. And he didn't know why he was there, the worker. And I was like, what? So, you know, and there is a level of just being a woman, and especially when you are not a white person that you have to contend with. I've had people confused before when I show up. I had one contractor think that I had entered the, um, the site without permission illegally. He just kind of looked at me like, who are you coming off the street? Um, so... That's always interesting. Hmm. Um, and then is, when I talk, yeah. Are the crews that you work with, are they all white or predominantly you know, white? There's a variety. Um, it's that's, I think that is such a whole nother show that I think I would love to be a part of. So, um, you know, here in North, it, it varies from state to state. Here in North Carolina, it depends on the trade. Okay. Mm-hmm. So like your foundation, your mason, but we're talking bread and butter, right? Not cast in place concrete, but like for your CNU foundation walls, it's either Latino, like we have a a huge population of Mexicans and Honduras here in Durham and African-American because they were the, they they were the original masons of this. Mm -hmm. They are aging out. Okay. So um, it's a, so that's kind of who you have for the, the base, the groundedness of your structure. Yeah. Of your house. 
for your framing, it varies. It's not African-American, at least not that I've found. It is either white or Latino. And if it's Latino, they're usually owned by maybe a white guy or maybe it's a Latino guy that's been here. So it can, it can yeah. um, but it also varies because we, I build modern. So there's very, there are things, there are details that sometimes have to be communicated because they are, they are specialized or different. Mm. A lot of times when I work with some Latino contractors as a woman, they're not, they're, they, there's a lot of <laughs> sexism sometimes and they will literally look at me and tell me, no, that's wrong. I'll say, well, I understand that you did a craftsman house down the street, but this is not a craftsman house. They will correct me and tell me, no, no, you mean that you want this. Um, and so our framers vary right now um, from Latino or white men. Um, I'd love to see more, more women doing framing. Um, and then carpentry is almost exclusively white, especially if it's like fine carpentry. <laughs> like carpentry, like, you know, when I do my ground up houses, they don't have, um, I don't trim out the windows, right? So there are things that have to be done and there's, it's specialized, not that specialized, but it's different. Um, and so it's usually, yeah, it usually is a, a very white male dominated industry in terms of the, the makers and, and the contractors that you use. All of my plumbing, mechanical and electric. So, yeah. <laughs> especially over this pandemic, I think people have realized how how much just um, influence and um, job stability there is in construction. There, I mean, we are at a housing crisis. There's not enough um, that we're seeing. I have met with two women um, that were looking to go back to school and become carpenters, which is my dream job. I wish and I watch your work and it's incredible. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, um, so I'm I'm trying to trying to figure out how to word this question. You you you've mentioned twice now about feeling <laughs> the feeling of exhaustion when you were seven, being exhausted just for advocating for yourself, and now in your current role, <laughs> advocating for yourself. Um. But I, I want to know a little bit more about like how how does it feel I guess internally to you to have to do this you know the the Claire Huxable um, Samuel Jackson you know Al Pacino yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, you know um, I'll be quite honest with you right I. It's actually, and I hate to use the word fortunate because I don't like that word or lucky, but having Roger, my partner, helps a lot because I had to kind of have him deal with things that I knew that if I dealt with them, it would be handled differently or that contractor would walk off the job. Um, and so you know, even in talking to Brittany, right? Because Brittany works for herself and she doesn't really do client work. And we kind of talk about that. And I, you know, and, and just talk about how you are received if you are very, um, what's the word? Direct. Um, Assertive. 
Yes, and having to play that. So I have in many ways kind of pushed Roger out there on the front line, like giving him a script, like here's what I need you to do. And it's, it is infuriating that I have to do that. Um, and it's gotten better, but you know what? I say that today and who knows what's going to happen at the next job, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, now we have sort of a team, right? Now we kind of have who we're typically using for all of our projects, um, but things happen, right? Um, and then you have to change it up again. And then you're back to square one, whether it's with your electrician or you know with your carpenter. Um, the one thing I will say though, um, Katie, is that it's really interesting. I've all, it, there's a sense of, even though I'm paying you, that people act like they're doing me a favor. I mean, I don't know if you, like, they'll be like, well, you know, I'm not going to be able to make it tomorrow. I'm like, really? Because I had you on the schedule for two weeks and I've gotten like, or like, they're or like, well, I'll try to see if I could fit you in. And I just know that my other white male general contractor friends, because I do have quite a few of them, they don't deal with that. Mm-hmm. So there's this sort of sense, like they're doing me a favor like them actually showing up and installing something on time is me. Yeah. And um, so I don't know what, it's like the sense of like comfort. Um, Also as a black woman in this industry, there's always this expectation that I'm nonprofit, that I should do free work, which I always say, if anyone should be the last one that does free work, it should be me. Because A, I don't have any generational wealth. B, I, we've always been underpaid, right? Women have always been, and Black women have always been right at the bottom. So why would I be nonprofit, right? And like, in order for me to do nonprofit, I got to have profit. <laughs> so there are all these just, there are many conversations, um, you know, and through it all, like at the end of the day, I really do love what I do. <laughs> and, you know, like I'm, you know, sitting here, like looking at, you know, photographs from like, you know, the last house I did and, you know, it's not perfect, right? But I really do love it. You you, you step back <laughs> and it's, it's done and you're like, whoa, we actually did it, right? Um, and then you, you have to start it again and then you're like, all the anxieties come back right so anyway uh well you know as much as I feel like I could ask you so many more questions (laughs) we're at the the end of our time together but I want to give you a chance to let people know um how they can find you follow along with you uh to see what you're up to yeah so you know just like my first name is not pronounced the traditional way, it's Alicia. My last name is Hilton, which is H-Y-L-T-O-N. Because <laughs> why wouldn't it be? So I'm Hilton, H-Y-L-T-O-N, Daniel. My husband has no S on his last name. So it's D-A-N-I-E-L.com. So Hilton Daniel, I'm sorry, Hilton Daniel. Um, I think we're just Hilton Daniel.com. I'm such a mess. <laughs> we are Instagram um, is Hilton underscore design. Yep. Okay. Awesome. How you can find me. 
And I'll include links on that uh, so everyone can find yeah. you and follow along. Okay. Well, it was really great talking to you. I really yeah. enjoyed it. Thank Same you so here. much. I am just wanting to say that I love what you do and thank you for supporting and reaching out to um, local women in the industry. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. For all of your service. Yeah. Take care. All right. Again, that was Alicia of Hilton Daniel, and I'll include the links on how you can follow along with her and see, you know, all of her recent projects in the show notes for this week's episode. You can find that in the description of the episode on your podcast app or head on over to freemanfurnishings.com forward slash podcasts and you'll find all the show notes for this week's episode and past episodes there. If you enjoyed today's episode and any of the previous episodes, please remember to hit subscribe, like, and comment. Head on over to iTunes, leave a five-star review. All of that just helps to uh, gain more traction with the podcast, so also share with a friend. Follow along on Instagram at MakerMomPodcast. Uh, You can head on over to Patreon and check out joining the tribe over there, different tier levels. Any tier you pick, you get access to additional content. And depending on what you pick, you can get different kinds of Maker Mom podcast swag. I'm also working on, it's not up yet, but I'm working on getting a Buy Me a Coffee account for the podcast. That way, if you wanted to just do like a one-time donation to the podcast, you'll be able to do that. Uh, There will be membership over there as well. When I'm not making a podcast, you can find me designing and making furniture and other home decor and occasionally dancing at freemanfurnishings.com and at freemanfurnishings across pretty much all the social media platforms. I am active on a daily basis on TikTok and Instagram. That's where you can see kind of the most recent and current project that I'm working on. So I'd love to see you over there. Tell me that you found me through the podcast. Um, That just makes my day. So at Friedman Furnishings. It is Friday, heading into a weekend. I hope you all have a fantastic weekend. Get to spend time with your families and get out and make something. See you next week. Thank you for listening to the Maker Mom podcast. You can connect with the Maker Mom community in the Facebook group page, Maker Moms. And remember, if you enjoyed listening to this episode, please subscribe, leave an awesome review, and share this out with other Maker Moms you know. Mm